ho, ho. It's a Merry Lupus Christmas. That means, yes, this is the Room Now podcast for December the 20th, 2019. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Today we're going to talk about a lot of lupus stuff. But before that, did you know that domestic violence could be responsible for rheumatology's number one problem? When do you start to worry about CCP consults? We don't see many of them. We see a ton of ANA consults. Blow those off all the time. They almost never amount to much. But what about other autoantibodies? Should you worry about them? And will we ever get good news in lupus? I think it's here. Just in time for Christmas. So an issue came up. I got a lot of issues in clinic. Um, and I'm always thinking of if only I knew the answer. And I saw a young man who has had ankylosing spondylitis for, oh, 10 years. And he's kind of fused, low back, a little bit in his neck. And the question is, you know, you know, I ask the usual questions like, you know, psoriatic disease, bowel disease, eye disease. When do I worry about his aortic valve? You know, AS patients certainly get aortic insufficiency and whatnot. And the question is, should we routinely be doing echocardiograms on our patients who have established ankylosing spondylitis or spondyloarthritis? And I think the answer is yes. So I looked at the literature, a very large Swedish study where they, you know, it's there, they call it Bechterev syndrome. And they got a lot of patients in this particular study, almost 6,500 ankylosing spondylitis patients who were studied by echo. And guess what? They showed that in their population, 18% of patients had an aortic insufficiency murmur. It was more likely with long-standing disease. It was more likely with increasing age, especially over the age of 50. The question is how many of those, you know, sort of, you know, bottomed out and needed aortic valve replacement. They didn't address that. But just having an AI murmur puts you in the category of, well, let's watch this. Another study also looked at this, um, 187 patients, um, also showing uh, a higher rate um, of 18%. The previous study didn't show an 18%. It showed a two-fold increased risk if you had AS compared to non-AS. This is 18%. I think the data really kind of suggests that you should be doing echoes in your patients who have especially long-standing disease. I wouldn't do it at baseline. I wouldn't do it when they're in their 20s or 30s. But after that, you might want to do it. A retrospective study looked at uh, individuals who had a positive CCP antibody but no evidence of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, are these people preclinical RA? Well, if they had a positive family history and maybe some joint pain without synovitis, they could be preclinical RA. Uh, first degree relatives and CCP, you know, the literature looks like you gotta worry about those people. There is a significantly high rate of conversion to RA. In this particular study, they looked at what was the influence of CCP on conversion to RA. And it was in those individuals who had the highest titers of CCP. Compared to low titers of CCP, there was almost a five-fold increased risk. And it was seen as much as, uh, uh, conversion was seen in as much as 46% of patients. So it's a different can of worms, if you will, compared to the, all those ANA consults that you get in these people. If they have a first-degree relative, if they have joint pains, if they have very high titers of CCP, I wouldn't say you know, you have no arthritis, don't come back. I would say good news is you don't have arthritis today, but let's, you know, follow you every six months or every year 
and see what changes because it's possible it could change. It's possible it couldn't change. You don't know until you just sort of follow them and discover what will happen. I saw an interesting uh, journal report. It's not from one of our journals. It comes from like the touchy-feely journal in about domestic violence and or or bad relationships or psychology. I can't remember the name of the journal. It's in, it's in the link. But I thought it was an interesting observation. Um, it was a population-based study um, based on a survey called the uh, Health Improvement Network done between in both uh, between 95 and 2017. And they looked at a large number of women, like, you know, 18,000 women who were exposed to um, intimate partner violence, also known as IPV or domestic violence, and compared them to four times as many who did not have exposure to violence in a relationship. And when they looked at the outcomes, they, they found that there was a twofold increased risk for fibromyalgia and for chronic fatigue syndrome. The you know, odds ratio for fibromyalgia was 1.73. Um, and, you know, this, this abuse has been linked to the onset of fibromyalgia in children. And it's not surprising this would be seen also in adults. You know, of course, they went a little haywire and cockamamie crazy when they started talking about stress causing inflammatory and immune reactions. And, you know, I don't think you can make those connections quite yet. But it's not surprising that um, domestic partner violence could set someone up for whatever the major life event that leads to, um, you know, a central pain processing problem. Uh, and this is something we should be asking our patients about because this might be a, an area of intervention in people who need intervention. The Journal of Rheumatology has a nice report about how early you get damaged in lupus. In the early lupus study of 230 patients followed longitudinally, they showed that the damage index um, was abnormal and high um, uh, by one year in 22% and went up to like 36% by three years. The risk factors were dyslipidemia, older age, number of organ systems involved, um, cardiovascular or respiratory involvement um, as predictors for further damage. It's not surprising since those themselves are damaged. But I think what I found interesting about this was it was seen early in disease. In the first 24 months, I, 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 let me correct what I said, it's 22%. Um, suggesting that lupus is, as we know, a very aggressive disorder in some. And early intervention, early uh, treatment, effective treatment is going to be important. Which leads me to several, um, two more or three more abstracts that I think are important this week. One from Annals Rheumatic Disease. Um, that if you have lupus patients and you treat them with low-dose steroids, that they may not flare in the future. Well, is that a duh kind of, you know, observation? Well, you know, again, many of us were taught to get our patients off of steroids. Steroids are bad. But, you know, I learned from many years of treating a lot of bad lupus in Dallas at the Parkland Memorial Hospital that a little bit of lupus, a little bit of steroids, was a long way in keeping lupus under control and keeping pretty active and severe lupus patients out of the hospital. That's been my observation. Well, we have two studies recently that support that. One from ACR, which I talked about during ACR, and this one in ARD, which said they compared 61 patients who are maintained on low-dose prednisone, 5 milligrams, uh, and 63 who were um, weaned off of prednisone. And guess what? 80% uh, fewer flares 
uh, in the group that was uh, maintained on steroids. Also, time to flare was better than patients who were maintained on steroids. Again, I would assert that if you have real lupus, I mean, not just like a little ache and pain, positive ANA, but patients who had, you know, three, four, five, six or more criteria, um, about three, uh, but more like five, four, five, six, seven, whatever criteria and major organ system involvement, the goal is to have them effectively managed and maybe a little bit of prednisone. Um, maybe the big splash at ACR were the TULIP-1 and TULIP-2 studies. TULIPs were, uh, were two studies done in systemic lupus erythematosus using the drug anaphrolamab and monoclonal antibody against type 1 alpha interferon. And Rish Fury presented the first uh, during a plenary session showing that TULIP-1 failed, meaning that, you know, uh, Three, 400 patients uh, enrolled with active disease on background therapies failed at its primary endpoint of an SRI4 response. Um, I think the number was like 40% um, placebo and anaphrolamab, 36% met the primary endpoint. Well, this is in stark contrast to the report that Fury gave two years earlier at ACR and UR, where anaphrolamab looked great and almost had double the response compared to placebo which had a 17% response and a 34% on, on anaphrolamab. That was phase two. It looked really good. This was all the rage. Finally, a great drug with a mechanistic reason to uh, treat lupus. So then comes TULIP-1. It fails. Well, guess what? Then there's a TULIP-2. That made New England Journal article this week uh, and is a positive study. Uh, a, a very well done, similarly done trial. Almost the same patients. Another phase three trial. This one, of 362 patients, the only difference was that they changed primary endpoints, in this case, to another outcome measure called BICLA, um, and it was significant, 48% on anaphrolamab, 300 milligrams IV, versus 31.5% on placebo, a really good response. Oh, by the way, the SRI4, which failed in the TULIP-1 study, also was a positive response in this TULIP-2 study, and also... A positive result was seen with Classy. That's the outcome measure for chronic uh, skin disease in lupus. So the question is, is this drug going to get approved for lupus or not? Great phase two, split decision on phase three, um, or are they going to have to do a deciding trial? Again, that's kind of the, 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 the great enthusiasm for this phase three in the New England Journal is sort of tempered by the failure of TULIP-1. Um, the other disappointment here is that that this drug is a type 1 alpha interferon inhibitor. But if you look at people in the trial who have that signature, who are high expressors of the alpha interferon well, 1 genes, they're no more likely to respond than those who don't have it. So, again, it's, a, it's got some grayness to it. I bet that the FDA actually will go ahead and approve this. Uh, in fact, I would recommend they approve it. By the way, I have no say in any of this. I'd recommend they approve it and, and put, put stipulations on what they want to see in a post-marketing study to further prove the efficacy and the safety of this particular approach in lupus, where we really would like to see some newer, better drugs. Which leads, leads me to my last study, belimumab. Um, many of you have heard me talk about belimumab in the past. I'm not too wildly enthusiastic about belimumab. It works. It didn't work in phase two. It worked in two phase threes. It worked by this much, meaning not very much. Um, but, you know, when you don't have many new therapies for lupus, it was a welcomed addition 
Um, and my gripe with a lot of lupus trials is that they're trying to get the drug approved with sort of global response measures like Bicla and SRI4 and Selena Sledi, and as opposed to going after specific manifestations of lupus like nephritis, hematologic disease, the arthritis disease, the skin disease of lupus, where you have much clearer and maybe better defined outcome measures as compared to all those others, which none of you do in practice. Classy, Bicla, um, again, they're all kind of confusing and really don't have much practicality in real world management of lupus patients. Well, GSK reported the top line results of their trial called the Bliss LN trial, standing for a lupus nephritis trial. This was reported just um, two days ago. Uh, 448 patients were studying this trial of belimumab versus placebo in active lupus nephritis patients who were maintained on background therapy, which could have been a number of different therapies and different uh, um, induction regimens. And the bottom line is in this uh, two-year study, 48-week study, uh, belimumab was superior to placebo in meeting a renal response definition of 43% versus 32%. That was significant at 0.03. Uh, there were a few other measures that were significant, complete renal response and time to either death or first renal event were also significantly better on Bluemab compared to placebo. Not much uh, in that trial as far as new safety signals compared to what we already know about Bluemab. Again, this is a welcome addition. This is the kind of trial I think we should be doing. Uh, Bluemab is not currently, Bluemab being Benlista, is not currently approved for use in lupus nephritis, but this is the kind of trial they need to do to possibly get this indication going forward. Uh, Again, we should encourage uh, uh, the companies to do more organ-specific trials in lupus as opposed to trying to hit a home run with um, their next new miracle drug, which is, as you know, been difficult to do for many drugs. Good news for lupus, just in time for Christmas. Uh, make sure you check out roomnow.live. That's our upcoming meeting in March 2020 in Fort Worth. I want to wish all of you a Merry Christmas, a great holiday. Hope you have a lot of time off with family and friends um, and that your patients will be there and waiting for you when you come back from the holiday. Take care. Merry holidays. Oh, check out the links on the website. Bye now.